Blog Talk Radio.
This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, Today is Saturday, uh, July the 16th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. To another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in our program, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the initial results of the elections in the Republic of Congo-Brazzaville, where the ruling Labor Party has taken the lead in the vote. A separatist leader in southwest Cameroon has been assassinated in the ongoing conflict with the central government. We'll have details on that as well. The Tunisian-Algerian border in North Africa is once again open after two years. And the war in Ukraine continues as the United States and NATO sends additional weapons into the country. In the second hour, we pay tribute to the 160th birthday of African-American journalist, feminist organizer, and orator, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Uh, She was born on this day in 1862 uh, in the state of Mississippi. In the final hour, we will listen to the report of the Secretary General of the South African Communist Party, uh, Dr. Blade Nzamandi, at their 15th National Congress that is being held this weekend. These and other features uh, will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a break. Uh, with uh, music uh, from uh, West Africa, Mamadou Giabate uh, from the Tonga album. Let's listen in.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the music of the legendary Mamadou uh, Giabati, um, West African origins from the West African state of Mali. Uh, Mamadou uh, began playing the core at a very early age, and that was taken from the album called Tonga. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, uh, Broadcasting live uh, from our studios uh, here in downtown Detroit on Saturday, uh, July 16th, uh, 2022. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, Our lead story deals with the ongoing election in the Republic of Congo, Brazzaville. And uh, what was published uh, yesterday, the provincial provisional results uh, of the first round of legislative elections, the polls which took place er er in early July, sought to fill the 151 seats uh, to the National Assembly. According to the Minister of Territorial Administration, uh, Guy George Mbaka, who announced the provisional results, the ruling party dominated the election. The Congolese Labor Party, the PCP of President Denise Sasu Nguesu, won more than half of the 151 seats. The voter turnout was not communicated uh, by the authorities. A second round of legislative elections is expected to take place by the end of July. Uh, Facing the PCT, uh, the Pan-African Union for Social Democracy, and the Union of Humanist Democrats, the Federation and the Collective of the Congolese Opposition choose to boycott uh, the vote. At least 3,000 observers sent by national NGOs, the African Union, and the Economic Community of Central African States, the ECCAS, are overseeing the overall electoral process. In uh, West Africa as well, in Kumba, in southwest Cameroon, uh, the COM uh, was a deceptive uh, Friday. A Congo uh, convoy of the Cameroonian elite military force known as BIR attracted about 1,000 people in a few minutes. The special forces were displaying the bodies of the separatist leader known as Field Marshal. The fighter had been giving uh, the army a hard time. Uh, He was wanted for his crimes against the military and inhabitants of the Libanem Department in the English-speaking region. Uh, He was eventually killed during a raid by the Cameroonian army on his camp. Authorities uh, insist this military success demonstrates the radical change in the balance of power in the war. If we have been able to neutralize him, be assured that those who remain, namely No Pity and Ten Kobo, will also be neutralized in the very near future. Chamberlain into Ndong, the perfect of the Mimi department, said, Speaking in the name of the head of state, the ministers and the prime minister here in the department, I can assure you that they will be neutralized one by one. The residents say they are relieved and can return home because for a long time they were living in hell. At last, a bit of peace, Papa Paul says, this person who was killed frightened us. He terrorized us at night when they came to attack and fire shots. We're thankful the army brought us a little peace. Uh, these past few months, relative calm and daytime and at night enable inhabitants to get back to their businesses. 
Political analyst Suleiman Mohammed insists victory must not be claimed too quickly. For him, the death of one man will not instantly bring back security. The only way out of this crisis is not to kill these boys. The solution is to sit down and talk and talk at the same time, he says. But the death of Field Marshal will not change the situation because the Amber boys are very determined for this battle since 2016 until now. It will be six years uh, in November of 2022, according to the Norwegian Refugee Council, NRC. The war in the English-speaking regions of Cameroon is one of the most neglected crises in the world. The conflict has put more than 60,000 people on the road of exile towards neighboring Nigeria. 700,000 Cameroonians are now internally displaced. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, a few cards and signs celebrating the Algerian-Tunisian friendship were very much in evidence today. The reopening of the land border between the two countries after more than two years of closure is taking place uh, this weekend in a fluid way uh, near Tabaka, according to journalists uh, of the Asian France Press Tunisian side. Uh, the Tunisian authorities expect more than one million Algerian visitors this summer, including a majority of tourists, as the nine crossing points between the two countries reopened at midnight Thursday night. The decision to reopen the land borders uh, closed because of the health crisis of COVID-19 had been announced on July the 5th by President Abdel Majid Tabonet uh, to his Tunisian counterpart, Kais Saeed. The border post of Mulula uh, near Tabaka, northwest, is the most important, according to Jamil Jurek, an official of the National Guard with 25% of the entries of Algerians via this border in 2019. Long live the Algerian-Tunisian Brotherhood proclaimed a large banner in the border area. Visitors had to check the compliance of their documents COVID uh, in a building surmounted uh, by inscription, Welcome to our Algerian Brothers in their second country, Tunisia. In 2019, nearly 3 million Algerians have come to Tunisia. A third of the foreign visitors in this year is marked by strong recovery of tourism. They had chosen a neighboring country to visit, to treat themselves, or to find family. While the links between those two states are traditionally very close since the Algerian War against the French colonial power between 1954 and 1962. And uh, finally, uh, the war uh, in Ukraine is continuing. A Russian fighter jet shot down two MiG-29 planes of the Ukrainian Air Force uh, just uh, two days ago uh, in the special military operation in Ukraine. That's according to the Russian Defense Ministry spokesman, Lieutenant General Igor Konashenkov. And uh, he reported this uh, yesterday. In the past 24 hours, fighter aircraft of the Russian Aerospace Forces shot down two MiG-29 planes of the Ukrainian Air Force in the areas of the settlements of the Slavyansk and the Rudskovska in the Donetsk People's Republic, the spokesperson said. Russian combat aircraft, a missile, and artillery troops struck about 230 Ukrainian military targets in the past 24 hours in their special military operation in Ukraine, Donashenkov reported. In the past 24 hours, operational, tactical, and Army aviation aircraft, missiles, 
and artillery troops uh, struck uh, 18 command posts and also manpower and military hardware in 211 areas, uh, the spokeswoman said. The MiG-29 multi-role fighter was engineered uh, by the Mikoyan Design Bureau in the 1970s. The MiG-29 is designed to engage aerial targets mainly within its radar field and also to strike ground targets with rockets within visual range. And to read these articles in their entirety, you just go to the Pan-African Newswire. And that's going to conclude uh, our Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, We want to remind our listeners, the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, Since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, also, if you would uh, like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, all you need to do is log on to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared by other potential listeners via email, blogs and websites, and on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the uh, voice of uh, Lucille Hageman, uh, who was born in uh, on November 29, 1894. Uh, she joined the ancestors on March 1st of 1970. She was an African-American singer and entertainer and an early African-American blues recording artist, and um, she was born in Macon, Georgia, and from an early age, she sang in a local church choirs. Participated in theater programs. By the age of 15, she was touring the United States South uh, with the Leonard Harper Mestral Stock Company. In 1914, she settled in Chicago. Were often billed as the Georgia Peach. Uh, she worked uh, with Tony Jackson and Jelly Roll Morton before marrying the pianist composer Bill Hageman. Uh, she later told a biographer, I was a cabaret artist in those days and never had uh, to play theaters. I sang everything from blues to popular songs in a jazz style. I think I can say without bragging that I made the St. Louis blues popular in Chicago. This was one of my featured numbers. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, July the 16th, uh, 2022. Today represents the 160th anniversary of the birth of uh, the legendary journalist, activist, organizer, orator, uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett, and uh, she was born in uh, 1862 on July 16th, and uh, we're going to look back uh, at her lifetimes and contributions uh, through a documentary uh, on uh, her lifetimes and contributions. Let's listen in. Coming up, she was the ultimate agitator and feared because of it as racial terror reigned over the south there were close to 200 lynchings in tennessee alone a young african-american woman struck back with her pen she was writing not just to inform but to shame she says i'm going to challenge you on this threadbare lie that african-american men are lynched because they rape white women she fled to chicago where she emerged as a radical black leader. There was never a time when Ida B. Wells was not getting pushed back, especially so in Chicago. And became an inspiration to a new generation. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter is addressing the same issues that Ida B. Wells took up in the 1880s and 90s. Ida B. Wells, next on Chicago Stories. Lead support for Ida B. Wells, a Chicago Stories special, is provided by the Nagani Foundation. Additional support is provided by Jim and Kay Maybe, strategic growth and transformation partners, and by the following donors. It seemed the entire world had come to Chicago in the summer of 1893. Most were so captivated by what they saw at the World's Fair, they were oblivious to what was missing. For one visitor, 
a 31-year-old African-American woman from Mississippi, the omission was glaring. The fair itself was a monument to extravagance, building after building constructed to display to the world how far America had advanced. Ida B. Wells had come to Chicago to point out what the fair's organizers had ignored. She was angry about the exclusion of the African-American story, especially the progress that African-Americans had made. Post-slavery, African-Americans started doing a lot of phenomenal things. They were elected to Congress. Um, they were elected to public offices locally. They became doctors and business people. But the signs of black culture Ida B. Wells found at the fair were mostly along the midway, and they represented stereotypes, not progress. Nancy Green, a 59-year-old former enslaved woman, proved a crowd favorite, playing the role of a southern mammy to promote a new pancake mix. Non-white nations were presented as savages or even sideshow acts. The slight was all the more appalling to Ida because she herself was a testament to the strides made by slavery survivors. Since her emancipation, she had become a widely published journalist. So it's like, let's show the world what a great country we are without showing any of the contributions of black Americans. Ida's friend, Frederick Douglass, was the notable exception. He was the only black American in charge of a pavilion, one built by the nation of Haiti. The Haitian government are the ones that invited him. So he wasn't even invited by the United States. And he was one of the most famous, you know, people in the country at that time. The irony didn't escape Ida B. Wells. It seems strange to me that but for an accident, Mr. Douglas would have had no part in the World's Fair because of race prejudice in this country. Yet whenever he went out into the grounds, he was literally swamped by white persons who wanted to shake his hand. And so, Ida stood at the entrance to the Haitian Pavilion, handing out copies of a pamphlet. A clear, plain statement of facts concerning the oppression put upon the colored people in this land of the free and home of the brave. It's around 90 pages. It's really like a little book. And Ida's the only woman <laughs> represented in the book. Wells had written it with Douglas and two other men. She's also the one who raised the majority of the money um, to have the pamphlet published. So you have these three men that are willing to sort of be led by a woman. So this, to me, is her publication. The exhibit of progress made by a race in 25 years of freedom against 250 years of slavery would have been the greatest tribute to the greatness and progressiveness of American institutions, which could have been shown the world. The preface was written in English, French, and German. She was standing in front of the Haitian pavilion every single day, handing out the pamphlet with the idea that people would go from this fair all over the world and say, what the heck is going on in the United States? It was simply savvy strategy, and uh, Ida was a savvy woman. Ida B. Wells' battles at the World's Fair 
were just getting started. But if there was one thing she had shown in her 31 years before coming to Chicago, she never went down without a fight. Ida Bell Wells was born into slavery six months before emancipation in Holly Springs, Mississippi, to James and Lizzie Wells. James was actually the product of the slave owner going into slave quarters. So, allegedly, he did receive better treatment than other slaves. Lizzie was one of ten children. All of them were parceled out and sold, sold to different places, and she didn't see her siblings after that happened. When freedom came, Ida and her parents remained on the estate of their former enslaver, and James continued to work there. But now, he was paid for his labor. There was extreme ambition during this period. African Americans were really committed to moving into the mainstream of American life as quickly as possible with as many skills as they could acquire. James Wells joined the board of trustees of the newly founded Rust College. Ida's mother attended school alongside her eight children until she could read. James had, you know, friends of his come over to the house and they would read the newspaper. They asked Ida to read the newspaper to them because, you know, a lot of people were not literate. This place by... Ida B. Wells doesn't come out of nowhere. She had parents who were very excited about their newfound freedom. And she observed her father, especially his political activism. I heard the words Ku Klux Klan long before I knew what they meant. I knew dimly that it meant something fearful by the anxious way my mother walked the floor at night when my father was out to a political meeting. Four years after emancipation, her father got his first opportunity to vote. Suddenly, James Wells found himself at odds with his now employer. He challenged even his employer, who demanded that James Wells vote on the Democratic ticket, and James Wells refused. And then he found that his former master had locked him out of the shop where he was working, and James Wells didn't argue with him. He just went to town, bought a new set of tools, and opened up a new trade as a carpenter. There was optimism and hope as far as every citizen is, is entitled to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And Ida took that seriously. But Ida's world would be turned upside down when she was 16 years old. It was the summer she left home to visit her grandmother's farm. There was an epidemic of, of yellow fever that went throughout the country, and particularly in the South. She knew that people had fled Holly Springs and assumed that her parents and siblings were among those people. But then one day some people came to her grandmother's farm and handed her a note saying that both of her parents had died. Ida was 16 years old at the time, and against her grandmother and several other people's um, advice, she decided to get on a train and go back to Holly Springs. She returned to find that her youngest brother had also died. Well-meaning charity workers were already there and busy making plans. 
there was talk of how different people were going to take different responsibility for Ida's siblings. And Ida was like, no, you know, we're not, we're not dividing the family. We don't do that. She had grown up hearing stories from her mother about being separated, sold from her family. So there was supposedly a shotgun on the mantle, and she got the shotgun. I was like, look, I'm going to take care of family. Like, oh, why didn't you say so? Sixteen-year-old Ida found work as a teacher and took on the role of breadwinner with the help of her grandmother. After teaching a country school all week, I came home Friday afternoon, six miles out from town, and spent the time from then until Monday morning washing clothes, cooking food, and preparing things so they could do without me until the end of the next week. Ida's Aunt Fanny saw the family was struggling and eventually invited them to live with her. They hopped on a train bound for the big city. She moves to Memphis, and Memphis is the place to be. It's, it's a metropolitan city. It is a transportation center, even in the 1800s, for the entire world. She saw it as exciting as a young woman. We shouldn't be surprised by this. She was a shopper. <laughs> she liked to look nice. She often talks about her expenses exceeding her income, in part because she was supporting siblings. But the other part, too, is that Ida was a clothes horse. <laughs> she enjoyed shopping downtown. Although Ida had hoped to secure a teaching post in Memphis, she'd settled at a small school in Woodstock, Tennessee, a short train ride away. But a fateful ride along the Chesapeake rail line would carry her on a much different path. Just weeks after her 21st birthday, Ida boarded the morning train to Woodstock, a first-class ticket in hand. She was dressed in white gloves and a corset, carrying a parasol. She was petite, she was a little under five feet, and very well-dressed, very obviously very well-spoken. During Reconstruction, blacks had the ranks. So she had ridden on that car several times over the, the past couple of years and was entitled to do it. She chose the seat towards the back of the first-class rail car. But minutes later, the train's conductor brusquely informed her that she was seated in the ladies' car, a fact Ida was well aware of. The conductor insisted she move to the smoking car, a lower-class carriage where men could often be found cussing and gambling. As I was in the ladies' car, I proposed to stay. He tried to drag me out of the seat, but the moment he caught hold of my arm, I fastened my teeth in the back of his hand. It took three men to forcibly remove her from the rail car, in which uh, she put up a fight, literal fight. And when she was removed from the car, the passengers cheered. You talk about something that infuriates someone, um, that absolutely infuriated her. Ida struck back by filing suit against the railroad company. She sued the, the Chesapeake Railroad and won and was awarded $500. The judge found the railroad company had violated the law by forcing Wells to ride in a car that was separate but unequal. But the lower court's decision would not stand. 
the Tennessee Supreme Court essentially attacked her personally to say that she was just being disruptive, that she wasn't a lady as she pretended to be. I have firmly believed all along that the law was on our side and would, when we appeal to it, give us justice. I feel shorn belief and utterly discouraged. And just now, if it were possible, would gather my race in my arms and fly away with them. When we think about the modern civil rights movement in Rosa Parks, she has the NAACP behind her. In 1884, it's just Ida B. Wells and her attorney. Ida B. Wells was starting to make a name for herself. She took a teaching job in Memphis and joined a lyceum founded by black teachers. It was a community of sort of thinkers and artists, and she actually took elocution classes, which is speaking classes. Um, and in her diary, she writes about how she was like trying to scrape up the money to pay for her next lesson. And so you wonder, like, what in the world was she preparing herself for? but she was honing her skills. Each program ended with a reading from The Evening Star, a gossip-filled newspaper which Ida called a spicy journal. She was shocked when asked to start writing for it. As Ida B. Wells first put pen to paper, she found writing to be nothing short of a revelation. She felt like she could sort of explore more of who she was and express who she was through writing more than she ever could in teaching. I wrote in a plain, common sense way on the things which concerned our people. Knowing that their education was limited, I never used the word of two syllables where one would serve the purpose. I signed these articles, Iola. When Ida B. Wells first starts writing, she was writing about the things that one would expect uh, a woman who's writing for a church publication to write for. But that started to change pretty early on. As a school teacher, Ida starts to document the segregation in the schools and how the black schools were not getting the same resources and the educational inequities. She wrote an article in 1889 about the Memphis school system, because, which is unfortunate because the article could be literally printed today and you wouldn't know the difference. She railed against her fellow educators. Some of these teachers had little to recommend them, save an illicit relationship with members of the school board. You have to think about the type of person who will start writing editorials and news articles about their own employer, but that's what she was doing. She did not get fired immediately. When the next school year came up, they didn't renew her contract. While teaching had served a practical purpose, writing was now Ida's true passion. She bought a partnership in the most radical black newspaper in Memphis, the Free Speech and Headlight, and became its editor. The paper's circulation tripled. What's unique about that moment is not only is she African-American at this time, but she's also a woman. And being a woman in a Victorian America, uh, where she is essentially playing the role of what was then considered what men do. Ida B. Wells was ascending at a precarious moment. As she and other newly emancipated African-Americans made waves, white supremacist fervor flooded the South. 
We kind of gloss over this period as if once the South is beaten in the Civil War, uh, that all of a sudden white Southerners just acquiesce to the people whom they had enslaved now coming into power, serving in political office. That is not the case. Black freedom, black political power was always contested. And so all across the South, we saw black men, women, and children being lynched. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't considered shameful. Newspapers would advertise that a lynching was going to occur to give these crowds a chance to come and watch. One such murder would change the course of Ida's life. She was spending the week in Natchez, Mississippi on newspaper business when word came that three men had been lynched in Memphis. Calvin McDowell, Will Stewart, and Thomas Moss. Moss was like a brother to Ida. Thomas Moss and Moss's wife were essentially her best friends here in Memphis. She was so close to Thomas Moss, Tommy. Uh, she was godmother to his child. Everybody in town knew and loved Tommy. An exemplary young man. He and his wife Betty were the best friends I had in town. Three years before their murders, Moss and his friends had opened a store called The People's Grocery. The People's Grocery was located in South Memphis, in an area that at the time was called The Curve. The Curve was a predominantly black community, and so you have these three black men that decide they're going to open up a grocery store in their own community. But their new grocery put them in direct competition with William Barrett, a white store owner making money off the black community. William Barrett was infuriated, like, how can these people take business away from him? What started as an innocent game of marbles outside the people's grocery grew heated. And the interesting part is this was an integrated game of marble with white children, white boys, and, and black boys. There was a fight, and eventually uh, adults uh, joined into this skirmish. The white store owner was injured. He convinced the county sheriff to deputize him and gathered a posse. They came late at night, this group of white men, the people, grocery owners, including Thomas Moss. They knew that they were coming. They, they'd gotten word. So they were prepared for this, and they armed themselves, and they were in the store when they got there. And that was a, that was a fight. Several white deputies were wounded. The headlines talked about rounding up every Negro that was involved. Ida's friend Thomas Moss was arrested with Will Stewart and Calvin McDowell and held at the Shelby County Jail. But then a lynch mob decided that they were going to exact their own uh, justice. And so they went to the jail and took them to a sort of a rail yard north of there and killed them. Shot them beat them, um, just lynch them. I do think that we should take a second and really explicate what that word means. Lynching was not simply tying a rope around someone's neck and hanging them, though that is uh, brutal um, and inhumane enough. Lynching was designed directly to send a message to the larger black population 
in the South, in many places, black people were in the majority. So how does a white minority that has lost power and wants to gain that power back uh, do that when they are in the minority? It was through terrorism. Lynching had become a common and accepted punishment for black men who had allegedly raped white women. But now Ida B. Wells, who'd grown accustomed to the brutality of Southern justice, began to wonder. Like many another person who had read of lynching in the South, I had accepted the idea meant to be conveyed. That although lynching was irregular and contrary to law and order, unreasoning anger over the terrible crime of rape led to the lynching. That perhaps the brute deserved death anyhow, and the mob was justified in taking his life. After Thomas Moss, who really was lynched because he was competing with a white business owner, something clicks in Ida, uh, a vengeful spirit, I think. And she decides that she is going to focus on the lie of lynching really for the rest of her career. Ida set out in search of the truth. Notebook in hand, she traveled across the South, interviewing eyewitnesses. There was no grasp of exactly how many black people were being lynched. She would find uh, where lynchings were occurring by looking through white newspapers. And she began to keep, basically, spreadsheets. Of the 728 murders she investigated, Wells found that only a third of the victims had actually been accused of crimes. She sat down to pen a blistering editorial. Eight Negroes lynched since the last issue of the Free Speech. Three were charged with killing white men and five with raping white women. Nobody in this section believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men assault white women. Her writing was uh, used to create a sense of outrage, and uh, every word was chosen for that matter. Her writing had this simmering rage. She was writing not just to inform, but to shame. If Southern white men are not careful, they will overreach themselves, and a conclusion will be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Within days, Edward Ward Carmack, editor of the Memphis Commercial Appeal, reprinted Ida's editorial. And she got the attention of the white community and certainly the white press. Unaware that the author of the editorial was a woman, Carmack called on the men of Memphis to avenge the honor of Southern ladies. Quote, The black wretch who had written that foul lie should be tied to a stake at the corner of Main and Madison Streets. A pair of tailor's shears used on him, and he should then be burned at a stake. The white community of Memphis was outraged. A mob of angry whites converged on the offices of the free speech on Beale Street. Finding the newspaper deserted, they demolished the presses and destroyed the offices. But by then, Ida B. Wells had already fled Memphis. By the time Ida arrived in Chicago for the World's Fair, she had been traveling more than a year. She had lost everything at age 30. Not only her physical property and her printing press, but also her friends, which is no small thing. Having lost my paper, 
had a price put on my life and been made an exile from home for hinting at the truth, I felt that I owed it to myself and to my race to tell the whole truth now that I was where I could do so freely. Ida B. Wells circulated 10,000 copies of The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition. Her plea for inclusion was largely ignored. Though the fair's organizers made one token concession, August 25th was designated Colored American Day. Frederick Douglass arranged the program, but Ida refused to even attend. We resented this sop to our pride in this belated way, and we thought Mr. Douglas ought not to have accepted. I was among those who differed with our grand old man. But Ida had another mission at the World's Fair. With the eyes of the world on Chicago, she would use the international stage to expose the terror of lynching. She was probably more looking at it as an amazing opportunity to get the message out and hit thousands of people all at the same time from all over the world. Her message was growing more militant, sharpened through her internationally published works Southern Horrors and A Red Record. She pulled no punches in describing how armed blacks had beaten back lynch mobs. The lesson this teaches and which every Afro-American should ponder well is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home and it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. I would call Ida B. Wells someone who was very comfortable hanging out in the left, you know, which, which was not very comfortable for people who were sort of straddling the middle or to the right. At the close of the World's Fair, Ida B. Wells set out to find allies for her anti-lynching campaign. For a year, she crossed the globe. Her motivating factor was to inform the world about how this country was treating its own citizens. If you're going to go to the root of the problem, you've got to find support among uh, whites. So she was uh, very good at building allies and very strategic. By the time Ida returned to Chicago in 1895, she'd been a refugee from the South for three years. Despite her many successes, she was financially strained and weary, in need of an anchor. She found just that in Ferdinand Barnett. He was 10 years older than, than Ida when they got married, so that would have made him 43. Ferdinand was a widower. He liked strong black women. Met Ida, he was like, yeah, um, we're going to need to get married. <laughs> His first contact with Ida B. Wells is because she needs a lawyer. Frederick Douglass recommends Ferdinand Barnett. Barnett was the third African-American lawyer admitted to the Illinois bar and the owner of Chicago's first black newspaper, The Conservator. Their wedding was announced in black newspapers nationwide and in a highly unusual move in the New York Times. 
This was the same newspaper that a few years earlier had called Ida a slanderous and nasty-minded mulatress because of her writing about lynchings. And now her wedding announcement occurs in that very same paper, the New York Times, the paper of record. Wells took the hyphenated name Ida B. Wells Barnett, and she also took over Ferdinand's newspaper. Having always been busy at some work of my own, I decided to continue work as a journalist, for this was my first, and might be said, my only love. The conservator circulation of about a thousand readers represented a healthy chunk of Chicago's roughly 6,000 African Americans. But the city's black population was growing. Ida B. Wells and two dozen more arrive in Chicago in the 1890s and thus put themselves in a position to be the institution builders of black Chicago. Ida and Ferdinand lived alongside most of the city's African Americans in a narrow strip of Southside land known as the Black Belt. Its boundaries were often enforced by violence. If you go west of State Street, you're in the stockyards community, a largely Irish community, and you're likely to get beaten or killed. You're not going to move too far east because middle-class whites don't want you there. And they certainly don't want you on the lakefront. So it's about four blocks wide, but it keeps moving southward. This will be the hub of the African-American community. And what's important here is that it is entirely self-sufficient. African-Americans find employment within their own community. African-Americans build businesses, newspapers, their political leadership. African-Americans are virtually institutionally complete within these southward migrating communities. Uh, which came to be called Black Metropolis. Ida took delight in the community's cultural riches. There were churches, Olivet Baptist, Bethel AME, and Quinn Chapel AME. And there were black social organizations. Ida B. Wells Barnett took her place among the cream of the 400, a social registry of Chicago's black elite. Ida B. Wells and Ferdinand Barnett were the political power couple, certainly in the African-American community in Chicago. The couple gave birth to their first child, Charles, in 1896. Ferdinand hired a nurse so Ida could return to the lecture circuit with their newborn baby. Ferdinand was attracted to the fact that she was out there doing things and he provided the support for her to continue doing that. I honestly believe that I am the only woman in the United States who ever traveled throughout the country with a nursing baby to make political speeches. The following year, Ida gave birth to Herman, then Ida Jr., and finally Alfreda in quick succession. This is a woman who's quite aware of the sacrifices she was making as a mother and the sacrifices her children had to make because she was often on the road. While Ida B. Wells Barnett continued to shine a light on injustice through journalism, 
she also started looking to politics as an agent for change. In this new arena, she faced the same obstacle as every other American woman. She could not vote. So instead, women like Wells made their voices heard through women's clubs. These were enormously popular and also beginning to be very influential and powerful. They were really the, the means by which women could have some influence in society. Ida helped found the League of Colored Women. Her supporters even created an Ida B. Wells Club. The women's clubs were an opportunity for women to pursue some self-education. And then they began to move from there into improving education for children, beginning kindergartens, beginning libraries, and ultimately to lobby government about getting the right to vote. As Ida B. Wells Barnett found opportunities in Chicago's civic life, she now started urging Southern blacks to flee north as she had. Literally, she tell people in the South, like, look, come north. It's, it's not perfect. I'm telling you it's not perfect, but it's way better than what you're experiencing. And so people would come. Because the new migrants had only one neighborhood to choose, the Black Belt was swelling. The beating heart of the Black Belt was now a strip of South State Street known as The Stroll. This was where the action took place. There were juke joints, restaurants, hidden gambling dens, and people constantly walking or promenading from about 2,700 South down to about 3,500 South. And so people could prominently show off their clothes, their gait. You didn't walk, you strutted. But cracks were forming in the Black Belt. As new migrants met up against the forces of segregation, housing became scarce and crowded. The Barnetts refused to be contained. They moved to a new home at 3234 Rhodes Avenue, making them one of the first black families to move east of State Street. Ida B. Wells was known to keep a gun in the house for protection. The political statement that they're going to live anywhere they can, people like Ida B. Wells, were committed to the idea that segregation in any form was a insult to African Americans. The Southern migrants still stuck in the Black Belt were often viewed as outsiders in their own community. Hordes of ignorant and dissolute, said one white reformer, to describe the Southern blacks who, quote, lowered the standard of the colored population in our midst. To distance themselves from such insult, longtime black Chicagoans formed a society limited to those who could prove their families had lived in the city at least 30 years. They called themselves the Old Settlers Club. Many of the old settlers are successful largely because of relations they've established with wealthy whites. These African-Americans find the new African-Americans as a threat to their leadership they're not as polished, they're not as mannered. Uh, as somebody once told me, the problem is they didn't work for white people. Ida B. Wells would make it clear which side of this social divide she stood on in 1906. 
She had been elected to organize a charity ball for the Frederick Douglass Center, built in memory of her old friend who had passed. The previous year's gala had been held at the prestigious Masonic Temple downtown. But Ida instead set her sights on the boisterous stroll and a rich Southside hustler named Robert T. Motts. Now, Robert T. Motts was a gambler, fairly shady person. But Robert Motts went to Paris, discovered Parisian entertainment, decided that his community needed something like that. A place where African-Americans could put on plays, uh, write comedies, enjoy African-American music. Mott's already had the location, a disreputable saloon in the heart of the stroll. Robert T. Mott's, however, he gained his money, was rich. And so he had the money to invest in something that he could be proud of. Mott's Peking Theater was his chance to turn over a new leaf. When he gave Ida B. Wells a tour, she saw the makings of a first-class establishment. The place was beautiful. She thought it provided class because it moved him away from selling booze. She liked the idea that it provided an opportunity to see African-American artistic excellence. I felt that the race owed Mr. Motts a debt of gratitude for giving us a theater in which we could sit anywhere we chose without any restrictions. When Ida announced her event will be held at the Peking, many in black high society were outraged. Citing Mott's reputation, the Chicago Daily News refused to even print the announcement. But the loudest assault came from the neighborhood churches. African-American minister spearheaded by Archibald Carey Sr campaigned against holding an event for the African-American elite in a place like the New Pekin Theater. He, he gave sermons about it. Not only at his own church, he gave sermons at other churches. Ida B. Wells hated hypocrisy. She'd been a member of Bethel AME, and she remembers when a former pastor had been guilty of inappropriate relations with members of his congregation and had been expelled only to be brought back with the support of people like Archibald Carey. Ida moved ahead with her charity ball and despite threats of a boycott, it raised $500. It was eminently successful. It cemented a friendship between Robert T. Motts and Ida B. Wells until his death. The Peking was the first black-owned theater in Chicago. It would give the city some of its first taste of ragtime, making way for other jazz clubs on the stroll, where the likes of Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway played. And Ida B. Wells had supported it, despite the objections of African-American leaders. She challenged the black elite. She challenged the black political organization. She challenged white leadership. But... She was willing to step on toes because she had a larger purpose. The black migration from the South that exposed fault lines in Chicago was also ratcheting up tensions across America. In 1908, the nation saw more than 80 lynchings in every corner of the country. It happens in the Northeast. We hear 
a lot less about lynchings. But of course, wherever black people go, lynching follows as a tool of social control. A lynching in Springfield, Illinois that summer would once again change the course of Ida B. Wells' career. In Abraham Lincoln's hometown, two black men were jailed. One accused of murdering a white man, the other falsely charged with the rape of a white woman. A lynch mob of roughly 5,000 whites assembled. They stormed the east side of the city where blacks lived, lynching innocent men and burning the neighborhood to cinders. At least seven people were killed before the Illinois Guard brought the riot under control. I had such a feeling of impotency through the whole matter, which seemed to be becoming as bad in Illinois as it had hitherto been in Georgia. The following Sunday, Wells was hosting her weekly Bible study for young men when the conversation turned to the horrific events in Springfield. The young people she was meeting with were so appalled by the violence that took place the nature of those meetings goes from being um, more about their faith and more and more about what they can do about racial oppression. They continue to meet every Sunday, calling themselves the Negro Fellowship League. And the group turned its attention to the needs of black men who had come north in search of opportunity, only to lose their way on the stroll. The stroll could have a negative effect on the life of a young male migrant because beyond the cigar shop along State Street beyond the outer doors in the back was a place where you could gamble Ida's friend Jane Adams had been concerned with the plight of immigrant women and children and she had created Hull House to serve them but there was nowhere for young African-American men to turn for help. They weren't welcome at institutions like the YMCA. All other races in the city are welcomed into settlements. YMCAs, YWCAs, gymnasiums, and every other movement for uplift if only their skins are white. Only one social center welcomes the Negro, and that is the saloon. Being from the South, she knew what kind of conditions people were coming from. I think she felt like she could relate to them on a personal level. Her dream, you know, was to create sort of the black hole house, if you want to call it that. Ida B. Wells unexpectedly found a sponsor for her vision at a Palmer House luncheon. Jessie Lawson was the wife of the wealthy editor of the Chicago Daily News. The Lawsons, who were donors, to the YMCA were unaware that it was not serving blacks in Chicago. Ida told Jesse Lawson about her dreams for the Negro Fellowship League and they set out to find a location. That location in her mind had to be in the midst of where the greatest need lay. And that was along State Street at the north end of the stroll. Ida B. Wells Barnett opened the Negro Fellowship League on a warm Sunday with a program for the neighborhood. As the room filled, they left the back door open to let in the breeze. But before long, 
The program was interrupted by the boisterous sounds of a group of drunken men outside, shooting dice with a pail of beer. Rather than call the police, Wells set out to invite them to the next Sunday meeting. And so when she goes into the alley to talk to those men who are drinking and, and playing dice, you know, she, she doesn't have any airs about her. Wells recalled their surprise when she extended her white-gloved hand to shake on their promise to return. They all said they didn't want to dirty my white gloves by shaking hands, but reiterated that they would go away and also repeated their promise to come next Sunday. There were black people who were from, quote, upper class who wouldn't even come visit the center because it was in a location that they didn't feel comfortable visiting. My great-grandparents were unique. They were both educated, but at the same time, they were willing to go into the hood. <laughs> Ida had built a beacon on the stroll, a place where men could find jobs, housing, legal help, and moral upliftment. I think she felt a tremendous responsibility. She's telling black folks, leave the South, and yet she's seeing people come and they are suffering, and no one is looking out for them, not even other black Chicagoans. But Ida B. Wells would feel the impact of that awful Springfield riot in another way. In the riot's wake, Ida and other activists received an invitation from Oswald Garrison Villard, grandson of the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. His letter, known as The Call, proposed a conference to discuss present evils. The following spring, luminaries like W.E.B. Du Bois and Jane Addams gathered in New York. On the first day of the conference, Ida B. Wells Barnett delivered a forceful speech on her 20 years of lynching research. This is what Ida B. Wells was doing around the issue of lynching. She takes lynching from a fringe issue that no one really, black or white, will touch, and she turns it into a central issue. At the close of the conference, the activists agreed to start a new organization. It would become known as the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Although Ida was initially chosen to be on the NAACP's founding committee, at the last minute, Du Bois substituted her name. My guess is that people like W.B. Du Bois were sexist. And I think we have to call that. He did not promote easily African-American female leadership. Secondly, the leadership of the NAACP from the beginning largely addressed to the African-American middle class and to the African-American upper middle class. But Ida B. Wells' campaigns had become increasingly geared toward the poorest of the poor. And despite her impassioned speech about lynching, the NAACP was not ready to confront the crisis she'd dedicated her career to. The NAACP, which Ida helped co-found, even though she doesn't often get the, the name recognition and credit for that, didn't want to touch that issue. It was something about the ideas that Ida had about, for example, lynching having its base in sexual relations. 
It, it was their thought that uh, this was a no-no. This, in fact, was something blacks like Du Bois wouldn't approach because he knew that white people would be offended by this discussion. Ida B. Wells, now 50 years removed from slavery, still did not have the power to vote. But she had joined Illinois women in a partial victory. In June of 1913, women in Illinois can vote in the presidential election and they can vote in local municipal elections, but they cannot vote, for example, for governor or for senator. Encouraged, Ida B. Wells took up the suffrage cause with new fervor. Noting that white suffragists were working like beavers, she established the Alpha Suffrage Club. Their slogan, race interest first, last, and all the time. The club mobilized black women in the Black Belt Second Ward and eventually helped elect Chicago's first black alderman. Those are ordinary women, not the high uh, polluting black women of Chicago. Ordinary women were told they had worth and could make a change in society. That spring, Ida B. Wells set her sights on Washington, D.C. On the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, she boarded a train bound for the National Suffrage Parade. Wells travels with the Illinois delegation. She gets to Washington, D.C. There are state delegations from all over the United States, and Illinois is very large. They've got drum majors. Wells and 250,000 women approached Pennsylvania Avenue. But Alice Paul, the lead parade planner, had a last-minute concern. Southern white women wouldn't march if they had to do so alongside black women. Planners suddenly asked that the black delegates march separately, in the back. Ida B. Wells Barnett was struck by the news. So Wells says, of course, I'm not going to do that. I came here with my delegation from Illinois. I intend to march with my delegation. And they march anyway, all together. And so the march is integrated. And it's just classic Wells. I mean, she stands for her principles no matter what. Though her Negro Fellowship League had now been serving men on the stroll for 10 years, Ida B. Wells was struggling to keep it afloat. Her wealthy friends admired her dedication, but wouldn't venture to the stroll and work among the uneducated, unemployed black men. I don't know if she originally thought she would be doing this work by herself. I think she expected and was hoping for other people to be as outraged as she was and to get in the trenches and fight. And she had never received the kind of wealthy patronage Jane Addams secured for Hull House. By the winter of 1920, the Negro Fellowship League's rent was in arrears, and Ida B. Wells was finally forced to close its doors. It is important that when we think about the strength of this black woman, when we think about the strength of black women, that we never forget that it always comes with a cost. And it certainly um, 
it took a toll on her. It took a toll on her physically. When Ida B. Wells Barnett was 68 years old, she attended a book reading with her oldest daughter. The subject was a book by Carter G. Woodson, the man who created Black History Month. But Ida was dismayed to discover that her anti-lynching efforts weren't even mentioned. She met a young woman who had heard her name but didn't know what she did. That was stunning for her that she herself was not known by a new generation. So she sat down to put her story on paper. In the first pages of her autobiography, Ida B. Wells explained, the history of this entire period, which reflected glory on the race, should be known. Yet most of it is buried in oblivion. And so, because our youth are entitled to the facts of race history, which only the participants can give, I am thus led to set forth the facts. I guess it was her story, but it's also the history of our country. Ida B. Wells' unfinished autobiography ended mid-sentence. A fitting reflection, perhaps, of a woman who knew there's still more work to be done. In March of 1931, Ida B. Wells Barnett awoke with a worrisome fever. She died a few days later. She is buried next to Ferdinand Barnett, her partner for more than 30 years. Ida B. Wells and Ferdinand L. Barnett, Crusaders for Justice. Can you put it down? Yeah. I am a native Chicagoan, and there was an Ida B. Wells Holmes on the south side of Chicago. Most people had heard the name, but it got to a point where it was just a disconnect between who Ida B. Wells as a woman was and the work that she did and what people associated with her name. In February of 2019, Ida B. Wells Drive became Chicago's first street named for an African-American woman. The next year, Wells was posthumously honored with a Pulitzer Prize. New York Times writer Nicole Hannah-Jones won her Pulitzer Prize the same day. When I found out that I had won the Pulitzer on the same day as my spiritual godmother, Ida B. Wells, a woman who did not receive that type of recognition in her life and never would have, um, I cried like a baby. Recently, a multitude of young activists and justice seekers are taking up the work of Ida B. Wells. For older historians, the reason why is simple. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is addressing the same issues that Ida B. Wells took up in the 1880s and 90s. Moreover, Black Lives Matter has a considerable component of black female leadership. I need for these racist systems to be dismantled. What we need is equity. What we need is recovery. They're taking to the streets. Police! They're writing essays. They're organizing cadres. Black Lives Matter. Women are faith and we believe in fighting. They are addressing systemic violence. 
more broadly than simply the issue of police brutality? I want jobs and resources in black and brown communities on the south and west sides of Chicago. Violence is caused by economic disparity, is caused by the increasing gap between the rich and the poor, and that is exemplified by the city. This is Ida B. Wells. In the last and unfinished chapter of her autobiography, Ida B. Wells offered words of wisdom to future generations, writing, Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Ida B. Wells was clearly outstanding and unique. There's no doubt about that. But I think what she would say is use your talent to the best of your ability to see her life as an example of what it takes to create change and the price. But not to glorify her or make her out of reach of the actions of ordinary people. Lead support for Ida B. Wells, a Chicago story special, is provided by the Nagani Foundation. Additional support is provided by Jim and Kay Maybe, strategic growth and transformation partners, and by the following donors. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that was a feature on the lifetimes and contributions of Ida B. Wells Barnett uh, on this day, the 160th anniversary of the birth of uh, Ida B. Wells uh, Barnett. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment. I can't sleep at night I can't eat a bite Cause the man I love He don't treat me right He makes me feel so blue I don't know what to do Sometimes I said his sigh And then began to cry He went away And never even said goodbye There's a change In the ocean Change in the deep blue sea My baby I'll tell the world there Ain't no changing me. My love for that man will always be. Now I got the Harlem blues. Since my man went away, I ain't got no time to. 
I do like the Chinaman Bay Calling hop Gonna stand on the corner Gonna blow my top Since my love Has been refused Now I've got the Harlem Blues Harlem Harlem Now she's got the Harlem Blues Yeah, she's got it
you are watching uh, the uh, 15th uh, 15th National Congress of the SA uh, Communist Party that's currently underway. Outgoing General Secretary Blade Nzimande is expected to deliver his political report any moment now. You saw him on the stage. He went away. Uh, we assuming he's going to come back. Uh, he's going to deliver his political report detailing the events of his time as a leader of this party over two decades and how the SACP has fared uh, during his time. At the helm, Samkele Maseko is covering the story for us. Uh, he brought us some very interesting interviews uh, in the morning with regards to this and uh, by all indications, the outgoing uh, General Secretary, Dr. Blaine Zimande, is about to start uh, deliver his political report. Let's listen in. Let me allow you to take your seats. Comrades, just before the General Secretary takes the podium, the report. Ah, comrades, comrades, order. Bambe, comrades. Comrade, what is going to happen? The General Secretary will present this report. And immediately after the presentation, the copies will be ready for each delegate so that we are able to have it. And then the provincial leaders must come and collect those copies. Um, we will be trying also to ensure that uh, the Central Committee members might be having it as it is presented, but they are still busy with that. At this stage, let me give it uh, to Unopala. Comrade John Malule, who fell down wrong. I Communist Party, Viva! Viva! SACP, 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 Viva! Viva! the African National Congress, Viva! Viva! Kosato, Viva! Viva! the YCL, Ufasimba, Viva! Socialism forward. Pansing a capitalism, pansing. Pansing of Tereso, pansing. Deputy National Chairperson, Comrade Tulas. Allow me, Comrades, to start by greeting our National Chairperson, uh, Comrade Senzeni Zowan, who was commenting very nicely that he likes very much the colors on the roof of this hall where we are meeting. 
and I definitely agreed with him that those colors mixed with the red of the SACP, it looks good. Now, let me also, comrades, greet the national office bearers of our party, Comrade Tulas, our first Deputy General Secretary, Comrade Soli, our National Treasurer, o Comrade Joyce Mloe Muropa, and all the members of the Central Committee who are seated in front here, including those members of the Central Committee who have decided to defy and sit down there. Let me also greet our glorious movement, the African National Congress, led by Comrade Gwede Mandashe, the National Chairperson of the ANC, and the delegation of the ANC that is here. Let me also greet Comrade Zingi, Losi, the President of our Federation, Comrade Losi Ikosato is our Federation, proudly so as Communists. The General Secretary, Comrade Begin Chalinchaji, Parani, and the other office bearers and the members of the delegation of Kusatu are here. Comrade Tini Kondini, the National Secretary of the YCL, and our delegation of the YCL here, Ufasim. Let me also greet Mette Mpohani, our mother, very special mother of ours, and all the Pakistanis who are here with us today. Let me also greet not our international guests. We are not guests at this Congress. You are part of us, our international participants at this Congress. And also all our national domestic guests who have joined us from various formations that we are working with, including business representatives who also are able to assist us as the party now and again. You are all welcome. Let's also greet Members of the Diplomatic Corps who are here, Ambassadors and High Commissioners who have joined us at this Congress, you are all welcome. But most importantly, comrades, allow me to greet all of you delegates to this 15th National Congress of the South African Communist Party. Comrades, let me make, let me start by making a plea. I like the energy that I'm seeing from you, debating and engaging. But can I request that now, with that energy, take it, let's transition now, and not focus it on discussing 
administrative matters. Let's use it now to transition to discuss the class politics of the revolution. I guess politics, my comrades. And that's where I want to suggest let's take this energy to face the challenges facing our own revolution. As we complete this centenary year of the SACP, our tasks and responsibilities are greater than ever. We are now nearly three decades beyond the decisive democratic breakthrough of 1994. It was a breakthrough that marked the formal end of decades of white minority rule built on three centuries of colonialism. The party, along with our allies, was in the forefront of that decisive 1994 democratic breakthrough. But after nearly three decades, comrades, life for the working class and for the broader majority of South Africans is in crisis. And the burden of this crisis hits women and working class women in particular hardest. It is no secret that the momentum of our national democratic struggle has stalled on many fronts. In some respects, the NDR is in reverse. It is no secret that our leading alliance partner, the ANC, by its own admission, is facing major internal challenges. A divided progressive trade union movement in a sea of mass unemployment is generally weaker now if we face the truth than 30 years ago. Proletarian communities, mainly in our urban townships and informal settlements, as well as in former Bantustans, are torn apart by the daily struggles for survival. Hence, I'm saying let's take our energy to the real issues facing the revolution. The current socio-economic crisis is deeply felt by the condition of the youth in our society, especially the exceedingly high levels of youth unemployment. One particular manifestation of the crisis facing young people is that nearly 4 million young people between the ages of 15 and 24 years are neither in education, employment, or training. This segment of young people is largely made up of youth from black working class and poor families. The crisis facing young people best illustrates the extent to which our national democratic revolution is encumbered by the very same contradictions it seeks to address.
And one of those contradictions is the challenge facing young people in our country. It is also perhaps apt to put up front the reason for the impact of what we refer to as the multiple crisis of capitalism hitting working class women hardest. This conceptual understanding must be brought to bear in our analysis and strategies to build a socialist society that does not discriminate and embed inequality between people, including based on race and gender. For instance, capitalism abdicates responsibility beyond the lowest wage capital can negotiate for the living conditions of the workers and the poor. You know, when capitalists are doing well, accumulating, all is okay, and the economy is doing well, and they often claim because of them. What they forget is that in that process of accumulation, they are deepening poverty and inequality for the overwhelming majority of the people. When that poverty and inequality hits crisis levels, they are the first ones to say, where is the government? Why is the government not addressing these problems? Yet when they eat, they eat alone, but when there are problems, they expect our own government to bail them out like they are doing now. responsibility of poverty, inequality and unemployment is shifted largely to women. In the household, comrades, it is women who carry a disproportionate burden of housework. Women are said to work a double day. Those who are working, they go to work or in the informal economy and then come home and start again with cooking, cleaning, homework, bathing children, looking after the elderly, looking after the sick members of the family and often tending to the needs of the men in the household as well. In fact, comrades, if truth be told, most of South Africa's households today are functional despite the enormity of the challenges that they, are that they are facing because of the role of women in those households. That's a fact that we have to accept. That is why we can't then be a society we wish to be if we were actually meeting out violence, including femicide, against women in our country. We are actually destroying the future of our country. And comrades, it's a fact that the less the state provides public goods that are essential for a working class family's livelihood, the more it is the unpaid care work of women that carries the family. 
It is this unpaid labor that is not counted in the national statement of accounts or when we talk about the gross domestic product. We don't count the labor of women. This double day for women is often ideologically justified through patriarchy and gender stereotypes that define women as carers, as cooks, and in some cultures prevent women from being involved in particular activities, particularly when they are in their biological reproductive cycle or menstruating. To truly shift the burden of women, society must do at least four things. Ensure that women's reproductive life cycle is accepted and supported in a manner that enables them to participate fully in society. It's a very strange thing that the fact that women carry human beings for nine months in their stomachs makes them to be regarded as lesser human beings. Ordinarily, they should be regarded as more than just human beings because they are able to carry this human life for nine months and ensure that they bring that human life to fruition after nine months. But ideologically, that gets presented as a, a frailty and as a weakness that often leads to discrimination against women. So we have to accept this. Secondly, we need to eradicate gender inequality within the family. Ensure that also thirdly, women are safe in the home, in the community, and in the workplace. And fourthly, ensure that women have access to and resources for full participation in the economy, in politics, and in social life. To ensure that women who are delegates to the 15th Congress of the SACP are made to be able to participate effectively no less than male delegates. By ensuring that whatever specific needs they have, they need to be catered for. In all this, comrades, the truth is, black working class and poor women are the most affected because of the legacy of triple oppression that comprises racial oppression, class super-exploitation, and patriarchal domination. As a Vanguard party, we must bring this understanding to bear throughout our structures, in our workplaces, in our relationship with our allies, and in all campaigns and struggles that we are involved in. The struggle for socialism is simultaneously a struggle against women's oppression. Now, let us return to the main question, comrades. Why is the life for the working class, including women, including its youth, why is that life for the broader majority of South Africans in crisis? And much more importantly, what is to be done? That is the task before this Congress, comrades. I would like to emphasize that. Let's not use our energies in a misplaced way. 
Our energies must be about what is to be done about these challenges that we are outlining in this report. There are frequent calls at the moment for a social compact between so-called social partners, government, business, the labor movement, and civil society. We also have Mr. Nedlek here in his deployment right next to me. As the SACP, we are not opposed in principle to engagements of this kind. We want to make this clear. And in fact, we support it. But those proposing it must seriously analyze the structural problems that we need to address. In particular, we need to do a serious class analysis of what has occurred in South Africa over the past three decades. The sober reality is that the class balance of forces that made possible the radical political and constitutional breakthrough of the mid-1990s has changed. It has changed unfavorably for the broader working class and poor. Any social compact under these conditions will be seriously weighted against the working class and poor, against the working class youth and working class women in particular, in the context of the legacy of colonialism of a special time. It will be a compact in which the prevailing and suffocating neoliberal macroeconomic framework will be off limits, non-negotiable. A social compact under these conditions will simply be about some redistributive trade-offs that will not address the deep underlying political economic crisis. That is why for any such compact to succeed, it must be based on concrete analysis of concrete conditions. We are not against the social compact to some cool. In your deployment as Minister of Employment and Labor. But we are saying let's be Marxist in our approach to it. What are the conditions that we are facing now? In a way, our constitution can be regarded as having been some kind of a social compact in 1996. But it was a, co a social compact based on a different balance of forces than we are at right now. And this is why then in this pro political report, we are proposing as our line of march for the next five years and beyond that the party must play a key role in building a powerful socialist movement of the working class and poor. All the other key organizational comrades, all the other key organizational, electoral, and socio-economic objectives we have consistently raised over the past are dependent for their realization on building a powerful socialist movement of the working class and the poor. Whether it is in addressing the multiple system crisis of inequality, unemployment, poverty, the rising cost of living, whether it is reversing the growing popular disillusion 
with electoral politics that we are seeing in our country, whether it is ensuring a just green transition or industrialization, whether it is achieving real renewal of an ANC in a downward spiral or reconfiguration of our alliance, all of these objectives will remain out of reach unless we fundamentally change the balance of class forces much more effectively in favor of the great majority of South Africans, the workers and poor. That also includes, comrades, what we are singing about. There is no state power if you don't have power on the ground. That is the reality. There is no state power if you can't shift on the ground the balance of forces in favor of the workers and the poor. You can dream about it, but it won't happen if objectively the conditions have not been changed. And we are saying the primary form through which we should change this is to build this powerful socialist movement of the workers and the poor. It's not for the workers and the poor. Because if we are saying it's a socialist movement for the workers and the poor, we are assuming that we're going to build it somewhere else and then bring it to the workers and the poor. It must be a socialist movement of built by workers themselves in this country. So the fundamental challenge facing the revolution at this point in time is to wage a struggle to tilt the balance of forces in favor of the workers and the poor. How do we do that? That's the task of this Congress, Makaban. That's what we should be debating and be prioritizing and be seeking to spend every minute of this Congress debating and coming out with the way forward on this particular matter. Let us begin, for instance, with what we all know. According to the World Bank, South Africa is the most unequal society on earth. We have the highest levels of income inequality. Our wealth inequality is even greater. We have what must rank as the world's worst crisis levels of unemployment at an unsustainable level now approaching 50% in the broader and more accurate definition. Youth unemployment is at around an incredible 70%. Unemployment of women of all working ages, with black women being the most affected, is 6.5% higher than that of men. Given that the racial and gender dimensions of unemployment continue to be rooted in the stubborn and persisting legacy of colonialism of a special type, it is pretty obvious that young black women are the majority of the unemployed. Consequently, mass poverty and related challenges like food insecurity, Vulnerability of the poor to weather-related disasters, like we have seen recently in KZN and Eastern Cape, including things like TB, COVID-19, diabetes, and many other chronic diseases. Our people are vulnerable to that because of some of these challenges. The resulting loss of social cohesion is apparent 
in the fact that we are also amongst the most violent societies in the world. Perhaps with the exception of only those who are in the midst of military conflict. Comrades, this Communist Party can't be dilly-dallying at this Congress and focusing on things that are not a priority. Last year alone, it's estimated, Comrade Chair, that just under 400 girls between the ages of 10 and 14 gave birth to children. What is that reflecting? Teenagers between the ages of 13 and 17 in East London, they die being in a shibin. That's one of the most serious expressions of this multiple crisis of social reproduction that we are talking about. And we are facing the reality of a society that is in decay. Let's face that as communists. And not dilly-dally about it. The fact that more than half of gender-based violence does not happen in the streets in the darkness. It actually happens where women are staying and where they are supposed to be safe. That is where they get raped, that is where they get assaulted, that is where they get killed. In my deployment, students rightly fight with me and say, we need student accommodation that is safe. That's true, they are right. But we need to do more than that if we are to deal with gender-based violence. Because it's in some of these most beautiful student accommodation that women students are chopped into pieces, like it happened with the young lady from East London at Forte. These are facts. It's not statistics. These, they affect real, living human beings in our society. They testify to the daily reality of working class households and communities, to children going to bed hungry and losing their childhood, to unemployed youth with their dreams shattered, to women suffering from the most awful gender-based violence, to LGBTQI plus people being abused, to retrench workers on street corners holding up placards that say plumber, welder or plasterer, hoping to be picked up by a bucket for at least one day's work this week, to human traffickers preying on the most desperate and the most vulnerable. Surely this Congress can't be preoccupied with non-issues when our country and the revolution is faced with these realities. It can't be. That would be irresponsible. And it would not be the Communist Party that the working class expects in this country. We can't be showing ourselves on television debating non-issues actually, instead of saying we have come here to spend time to address this. And what does this require? It requires that we unite ourselves. A Congress is not a place for grandstanding. A Congress of a Communist Party is a place to address these realities.
that we are coming from and we are returning back to when we go to our places of abode or in our workplaces. Now, these are daily South African realities. In different degrees, you will find them throughout the global south. But what makes South Africa as a global outlier, outcast almost, is the degree to which poverty and unemployment occur amid extreme inequality and significant wealth. All these things that we are outlining here, they are sitting side by side with people who are filthy rich in this country. Because South Africa is a global outlier in other respects as well. For instance, the value of speculative capital on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, or it's called the Securities Exchange now, is around three times more than our GDP. Stock Exchange, by the way, is like a casino. It's a place for capital to gamble. So there is more money for gambling by capitalists than our gross domestic product. To gamble with our lives and the lives of the working class. That's what capitalism is. And even more so today, as this political report will show just now. We are like a dog with a tail that is triple the size of the rest of its body. The rand is amongst the most traded emerging market currencies. We are said to have amongst the most sophisticated of financial sectors. Are these different sets of realities unconnected? On the one hand, the social calamity that I've been talking about, and on the other hand, the hyper-financialization on the other. Are inequality, poverty, unemployment, and endemic social violence, as we are told, merely a legacy of a hangover from decades of apartheid, worsened by state capture, or what Marx in Capital Volume 1 called the fraudulent alienation of the state, and supposedly unpredictable, are South Africa's hyper-financialization characteristics essentially a positive reality as we are constantly being told? We have a good, nice, large financial sector. We regard that. We are told it's a big positive for our economy. The terrible legacy of colonial and apartheid past and endemic corruption are major factors, comrades. We are not under, underestimating them. But it is the hegemony of the financial oligarchy and its related neoliberal policies and its capture of some of our public institutions, including the Reserve Bank, Treasury, and the Public Investment Corporation, and its deep influence upon government and wider society that have become the major drivers of the deepening socio-economic crisis confronting the majority of South Africans. That is the thesis from this political report. That what we are actually now dealing with is as a result of this financial oligarchy that is actually at the heart and controlling our economy. We'll spend a bit of time in explaining this in this political report. It is for this reason that in this political report, 
As we review the strategy and tactics and the tasks of the SACP in the coming five years, it is necessary that we begin right here. We need to reflect much more deeply on the nature of the neoliberal hyper-financialization of our economy and its socio-economic impact that has been underway very rapidly since 1994. To put it bluntly, over the past quarter century there has been an aggressive neoliberal assault driven by the financial oligopoly on our new democracy. Our democracy is being assaulted by this financial oligarchy. There are many examples, by the way, comrades. You see adverts on television. It appears it's an advert, I won't mention the name of a company, that is selling you means that when you are sick you go to hospital. And then it adds very quickly. For each day you are in hospital you're going to get so much money. That's financialization of health. That advert is not selling health, it's selling money. It's actually selling debt. That's just one simple, clear example of the extent of the financialization of our lives and the financialization of our economy. The stranglehold that the monopoly financial sector now has over our political economy undermines our ability to effectively advance key developmental programs like reindustrialization, major infrastructure bill programs that we need, universal basic income grant or a national health insurance or funding of students in higher education, for instance. All these things we agreed we must do, but the single biggest enemy is the financial oligarchy that actually is holding. Now here you are, Tishomkul, Comrade Tulas, deployed as a minister. When you go to NETLAC to negotiate, you have got representatives from employers. Who are they actually? It's the financial sector. It's even positioning itself as representing the interests of employers in totality. When they are actually representing a section, but a very powerful section, that controls our economy. Marxist analysis of the earlier apartheid era political economy correctly identified Comrade Gwerden, the mineral energy complex as the dominant capitalist sector in South Africa. This dominance was reflected in a number of other core features. A mineral... SACP's 15th National Congress... Welcome back. And uh, that was um, a large excerpt uh, of the political report uh, delivered uh, by uh, the outgoing uh, South African Communist Party Secretary General, uh, Dr. Bladen Zamande, uh, who uh, has been reelected as national chairperson of the South African Communist Party, and Sally Mapela, uh, who is the uh, Deputy uh, Secretary General, is now the Secretary General of the South African Communist Party. We'll uh, continue in our next episode uh, to hear other reports uh, from uh, the African National Congress uh, delivered by President Cyril Ramaphosa, as well as the Secretary General of uh, the Congress of South African Trade Unions. 
And that's going to uh, conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, this worldwide radio broadcast uh, for uh, Saturday, July 16th, uh, 2022. Uh, We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access to our program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email, blogs and websites, and social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with the music of Abby Lincoln uh, from the 1961 album entitled Straight Ahead. This is Habayomi uh, Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Miss Lucy, put that music book away. What's the use to keep on trying if you practice till you're gray? You can't start no notes of flying like the ones that rant and rain from the kitchen to the big woods when Melinda sings. Easy enough for folks to holler Looking at the lines and dots But there ain't no one can sense it And the tune comes in in spots But for real melodic music That just strikes your heart and clings Just just stand and listen with me When Melinda sings Oh, it's sweeter than the music of an educated band. And it's dearer than the bad old songs of triumph in the land. It seems holier than evening when those silent church bells ring. As I sit and calmly listen when Melinda sings.
Bowser. Stop that barking, hear me? Manzie, make that child keep still. Can't you hear the echoes calling from the valley to the hill? Let me listen, I can hear it through the brush of angels' wings. Soft and sweet, swing low, sweet chariot when Melinda sings.
Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.